And welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. My name is Alina Jenkins, and in this episode, we'll hear from Professor David Irby, who won the prize in 2010, along with Professor Richard Resnick. David is a Professor Emeritus of Medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine and a senior scholar in the Center for Faculty Educators at the University of California in San Francisco. From 1997 to 2011, he served as Vice Dean for Education and Director of the Office of Medical Education in the UCSF School of Medicine. In addition, he was a Senior Scholar at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Over the past 40 years, his research has focused on clinical teaching, faculty development and curriculum change. In our interview, he told me about the research which led him to win the prize in 2010. So... As long as I can remember being in medical education, I've been totally captivated, fascinated by the amazing quality of clinical teachers and wondered, how could they figure out what to teach to a particular learner around a particular case that showed up in their clinic that day when they had no opportunity for advanced preparation? Um, Coming out of a college teaching background, I knew that as a teacher, I would spend, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 hours to develop one hour of instruction. Uh, So huge amount of prep. So how in the world do these folks do it? Uh, So my first body of research, which was part of my doctoral dissertation in education, was trying to identify what are the characteristics or behaviors of really great clinical teachers. And this essentially extended the research that had been done in the classroom settings into the clinical settings. And from that basic research, which is basically what I found was that, no surprise, really great teachers are knowledgeable, they can unpack and explain their content clearly and in a well-organized manner. They can establish rapport with their learners and actively engage them in the learning process. But also in clinical teaching, they can provide supervision and feedback and exemplify or demonstrate professional behaviors of caring, compassion, respect. From that uh, set of research, I then set about to try to figure out, well, if those are the characteristics of the best, can I use that to change uh, faculty development and guide people to know what uh, is best practice? And can I measure it in some way so that clinical teachers get credit for their teaching? Uh, namely student ratings of learners. So I did a whole set of studies around the uh, reliability, validity of uh, student ratings of teaching based on that research. Uh, That ended up being used by most or many medical schools around the country and world. So that was my first 
foray into looking at clinical teaching in medicine. The second stage, which occurred about 20 years later, uh, was, or 15 years later, was to take a very different lens. Instead of looking at the behaviors of the best and the worst, I was interested in what happens inside their head. And I was interested in knowing how do they reason around a clinical case? How do they, how does the clinical reasoning around a patient that they're seeing with their trainee connect with their instructional reasoning, namely what they're going to teach the trainee around that case? So it was more of a cognitive study of the inst- clinical instructional reasoning of best clinical teachers. And what do you need to know in order to be able to teach effectively? And so uh, those two questions guided uh, a series of qualitative studies uh, to try to understand and unpack the clinical instructional reasoning of distinguished clinical teachers in medicine. So what I found was, surprisingly to me, in terms of reasoning, that clinical teachers reason very similarly to classroom teachers. Namely, they prepare, even though you can't see it in the clinical setting, but they often will look at the chart and figure out what's coming up the next day and do some thinking about that. They reason interactively around the case by listening first to the patient problem and diagnosing the patient and sort of simultaneously diagnose the learner and what they need on the basis of what they're hearing them present to them and then teach to their the learner's point of need and finally afterwards they reflect on that in order to get better Uh, so pre during post uh, is sort of the model there of the reasoning process. And then the knowledge base sort of debunks the old notion, which was that if you know your stuff, if you're a great clinician or you're a great teacher, perhaps a distinguished researcher, then you can automatically teach. And what I confirmed in clinical teachers, which had also been found in classroom teachers through Lee Shulman's work, is that, in fact, your subject matter expertise is critical, but it's insufficient to be a distinguished teacher. That, in fact, in addition to understanding and being able to unpack your subject matter, you have to understand your learners. You have to be able to adapt uh, your content to the learners. You have to understand pedagogical strategies for how to do that effectively. And all that goes together in what's called a teaching script, which are sort of key points that you typically would draw on. So I was able to identify those scripts, describe them based on the a study of uh, six really outstanding clinical teachers in medicine. So those two bodies of work all centered on trying to understand distinguished teachers, clinical teachers in medicine, uh, is what won me the award. Was it a surprise to discover that fantastic expertise doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher? Was that a pivotal point for you in your research? 
It was, and it was exactly what I was hoping to find. Uh, <laughs> after all, what good is an educator if they don't make a difference, right? Uh, if it was all simply a matter of being able to spout your content knowledge without any other expertise, then anybody can do it. And it's obvious that everybody can't do it. You have Nobel laureates who can't explain to the public what it is that they know and learn, earn their award for. You have typically in medical schools, you have outstanding researchers who come in and give a lecture on their particular set of research that goes right over the head of the of the medical students because the researchers are so used to dealing with their postdocs and with their colleagues, they forget and can't translate it, can't simplify it to a novice who is not part of that discourse community that they are part of. So the really unique, distinct knowledge that teachers have is that is what Lee Shulman called pedagogical content knowledge. And that's exactly what I found in those teaching scripts of clinical teachers. It also explains why these teachers that I would see that seem to fluidly discourse around a particular patient with a particular learner, just without effort, could do so because they had those scripts in their head. And they typically consist of about three to five teaching points. And most of the time, what's happening is they are picking the particular points, one to three of those key points, because of something they've heard in the learner that they think the learner might benefit from. Uh, so it's matching a preset of scripted notes, if you will, in your head uh, with what seems to be a gap in the knowledge or understanding of the learner. And that's why it's instantaneous. It's, it's fluid. It's a form of expertise, just like clinical diagnosis is. You spoke there about good and bad behaviours. I wonder if some of the good behaviours are perhaps around communication, active listening, for example, knowing your audience, things which I teach in my role as a communications coach. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the critical thing. Most people think if they can just understand their content knowledge, that's all they need. And it's not. It's really understanding your learner and simplifying it in a way that makes it understandable to anybody who wants to access that body of knowledge. In fact, one of the really great teachers that I was privileged to observe put it this way. He said, the longer I teach, the more I go back to basics. The initial teacher wants complexity. They want people to understand the nuances of sort of the cutting edge of where they're working and are fearful that they will bore their learners if they simplify it too much. One of my challenges is, has been to try to communicate learning theory to medical students, residents, faculty, through faculty development. And uh, it's taken me years to be able to simplify that far enough that it's accessible to anybody. And so 
it's a challenge. It's hard to do, and it goes against the grain of wanting more expertise, more in-depth focus that is so much a part of specialization and research. But the sort of core hallmarks of communication, as you understand, is being able to connect with your audience at a level that they can understand and begin to engage with you in that dialogue. You mentioned the longer you've been doing this, the more you need to go back to basics, which leads me to ask, you've been doing this for many years. How do you feel the field has changed and whether that's changing for the better or whether there's still much more work to do? Well, there's always more work to do. That's the exciting thing about it. The field has changed dramatically. I entered medical education in 1970. So I've been at it for a long, long time. Uh, And most of that time, I've done faculty development. But as I look at the field, one of the striking differences between now and then is the amazing expansion of medical education research and the welcome embrace of the learning sciences in medicine. Uh, That was not true uh, even 20 years ago. So there is a large and growing evidence base around which to guide teaching and learning and curriculum development. And that is being built upon, used to design programs of study and curriculum. It's also being used to sort of guide policy. So, for example, what, maybe uh, 10 to 20 years ago, someplace in that time frame, you had uh, residents who would typically work 80 to 120 hours a week. Unbelievable. And so policy decisions were put in place in most countries, and Europe has more stringent requirements than the U.S., for example. Those policies were created in order to protect patient safety and to ensure the well-being of the trainees who were involved in that. For the most part, that was driven by not only the political uproar over terrible patient care errors, but also because of a concern for the well-being of trainees. And so a lot of research over the past two decades has tried to figure out how does sleep deprivation impact patient quality and safety? Now, it turns out, after 20 years of trying, Uh, it doesn't seem to have much impact. And that's probably because there are lots of other safety mechanisms in place to buffet the challenges associated with uh, not having as much rest as one might desire. So it's just one example of how policy is increasingly driven by, but always not always in sync with the literature and the research that goes into studying this. You can look at issues of feedback. You can look at curriculum structure. You can look at time versus competency-based education. A lot of areas where a lot of research has gone into trying to figure out what works and why, and has been distilled in reviews in the literature that then help the practicing educators guide 
which direction they want to go. So very impressed with the quality of that. And it's also a good example of how Karolinska Institute and its prize for research in medical education has elevated the status of medical education research or health professions education research. It wasn't too long ago, uh, namely a decade to two, that if you decided you wanted to have a career as an educator in medicine, it was a kind of a death warrant to your future career aspirations as an academic. Why? Because there wasn't much research. People weren't trained to do medical education research. And as a result, promotion committees focused on research as the primary criteria for promotion. Uh, Educators didn't do well in academia. And it's only been in the last, say, 20 years that there's been a pushback to that and an approach to try to say teaching is the core mission of a university and we need to find ways to promote, advance, develop, reward distinguished teachers in the same way that we recognize and advance and develop researchers. And KI has a role in that in the sense that the prize lifts up on the international stage the importance and the um, recognition of those who really exemplify excellence in this area. It's an amazing gift. Uh, The foundation is visionary in seeing uh, how it could bring about that impact. And uh, the new KI Fellows Program, which is designed to encourage, promote, and help develop further possible candidates for this award is truly amazing. And especially with its focus on the global South and sort of the non-Western, highly productive medical education research countries, such as the Netherlands, Canada, U.S., so it's a it's an amazing process and one that I've have been blessed to be part of and uh, have immensely enjoyed uh, my connections with. I want to come back to your experience of the prize in a moment, but you picked up on the research some of the fellows are doing around medical education between the global north and the global south. I know you've been working on establishing international standards. Is their research influencing your work? It was a total treat to meet with them and to work with them uh, last year. They are doing really, really important work. One of the challenges in setting global standards in medical education is wanting to be respectful and inclusive of cultures which are non-Western, non-industrialized, and it's challenging to do that, and it's challenging to to find ways to level the playing field, as in awards, uh, when the infrastructure that often supports research isn't there in under-resourced countries. So I have the privilege of creating the Aspire to Excellence Award in faculty development for 
AMI, the Association for Medical Education in Europe. And that was an opportunity to put a committee together that was global and try to come up with a set of criteria for evaluating faculty development programs that was global. What we found in that process was we were highly influenced by established and highly resourced global north universities, such as my own, in terms of setting those standards. And after a year and a review by the AMI board, we sort of relaxed a little bit on the scholarship one, which was one of the criteria, in order to encourage Global South, in particular, countries to apply and to be recognized. We definitely tried to be cognizant of the differences in resources and to accommodate that, but it's challenging. Uh, So the work that the KI fellows have done in terms of helping us to understand the privilege that we have in uh, Global North and to encourage and promote voices that are non-Western, non-industrialized is really important and uh, will help us, I think, to incorporate their perspectives as we move forward in medical education in the future. Earlier, David, you were talking in glowing terms about what the prize has done for medical education research. And of course, you were the winner back in 2010. What have been the impacts for you, both professionally and personally? I think the first impact was on me personally. There is nothing more wonderful than being recognized by your peers for the quality of the work that you've done throughout a lifetime. So I was just so incredibly grateful and honored to be recognized, particularly when you look at the other recipients of this through the years. Uh, It's an extraordinary group of colleagues. It is a small group, so we all know each other. Uh, We all respect each other. We are all influenced by each other's work. So the affection and the Uh, recognition by peers is just truly amazing. Uh, So I would say, number one, that for me was the most significant. Second was the recognition that nobody does this by themselves. Uh, We are all part of a community. And just as I know, recognize, celebrate the uh, winning of the other recipients, I also recognize that my award, I did almost almost all of my research with other colleagues, and uh, so it's a team sport. So for me, it recognizes not only my contributions, but my colleagues at UCSF and at University of Washington and others that I have worked with nationally and internationally. I would say the third thing is that as a result of being at KI and connecting with the extraordinary medical education researchers there, I have developed working colleagues and have continued to do and actually created uh, joint research with them over the ensuing years. So it's created, it's expanded my network 
and uh, connected me to KI. In that respect, I should probably should tell you one other thing on why that's happened, and that is that when I received the award in 2010, I offered a airline ticket to my son and daughter, and my daughter jumped on it and came. My son was busy, so he gave it to his daughter, so I had my granddaughter and my daughter with me. The night I got the award, uh, my daughter, who is very much into swing dancing, and it turns out Stockholm is one of the centers of it worldwide, uh, said, well, Dad, congratulations, I'm going to a dance. And so off she went. And when she was at the dance, uh, she connected with a guy and they exchanged Facebook accounts. And uh, five years later, uh, when my daughter, who at the time was about 42 and was very anxious to get pregnant and wanted to have a baby and was talking about that on social media with her friends, this guy pops back in and says, gee, I've wanted the same thing. So over time, anyway, he's now our son-in-law uh, and she is in Stockholm and we have a Swedish grandson now. So we spend time going over repeatedly, which gives me an opportunity to reconnect with my KI colleagues. So I consider my Karolinska Prize as being so much more than simply the prize. It has now given me a, a Swedish family and a grandson that is a gift that keeps on giving. Professor David Irby. That's all from this episode. Next time I'll be speaking to the winner of the 2020 prize, Dr Glenn Regeer, whose main research impact has been in conceptualising methodology and its relationship to theory, a groundwork for significant research activity. I hope you can join me then.